Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. wonder if any of you at some point in your life have been part of a, uh, a bad church. Um, I, I wonder what that looks like for you. Churches can go south in a lot of different ways. I, I tell people a good church on earth is like a little slice of heaven, and a bad church is like a little slice of hell. And that's true across all denominations. You can be Protestant, Catholic, you know, Lutheran, non-denominational, Anglican, Presbyterian. Just good churches and bad churches uh, are either great or terrible. There's no middle ground. And it turns out when you get a bunch of people who call themselves sinners together in the same room, uh, things can e- very easily topple towards uh, human selfishness if we're not careful and away from God's values and standards. In fact, I know many of you have been in bad churches in the past. You've shared with me uh, from a previous life how a pastor uh, that you had ended up being a total hypocrite and had part of his past exposed and uh, left the ministry in shame. And you were told uh, from the pulpit how to vote for a certain political candidate or what political party you should belong to. Or you told me how a figure of religious authority abused you when you were a child. And it's not just you, it's people all the time, just by virtue of my station, I guess. Uh, Whenever I meet new people, one of the first things they go to is they tell me about the church they grew up in um, and why they don't go to church anymore or the the, the bad church that they were a part of for so many years that caused them to give up on the faith altogether. Um, The the only people I don't know, the only people that I know who don't have a a hard church story or a sad church story are the people that have no church stories at all. (laughs) In fact, I think everyone's bumped into this at some point in their life. Well, if you've ever wanted to know what Jesus would think of that church, in our reading today from Mark's Gospel, we catch a glimpse. It's a long reading. It's a long reading, but it's, it's a contained reading because from beginning to end of our reading today, you have Jesus uh, entering Jerusalem and you have him inspecting the temple on, on day one. And then on day two, he comes in and he actually shuts the temple down. He, he creates such a ruckus by overturning the tables of the money changers and knocking over the, the livestock stalls, cleansing the temple is what we've historically called it. He makes such a ruckus doing that, um, that the entire sacrificial system of Israel stops <laughs> for a day, the week before Passover, and, and everything grinds to a halt. And then he spends that time teaching and preaching himself and, and calling for reform of the temple, and then finally, this third day, Jesus is attacked and challenged by maybe a half dozen religious groups, and all of them are threatened by what Jesus is saying, because they all have their own hopes and dreams for the temple. They're all vying for sort of political and cultural power, and by the end of the reading, Jesus uh, sort of exposes that this house of God, this temple in Jerusalem, which was supposed to be this geographically central place on earth where people could come to meet with God, well, um, it's really just an an Old Testament toxic church at this point. 
to use the language of our time. And so it, it exposes the, the, the sickness and the unhealth of the core of temple life. And it's little wonder that Jesus talks about the temple's uh, downfall that is scheduled to happen soon after this. And so this is a pretty big deal because this, the temple is, is such a huge part of the Old Testament. It's such a huge part of Israel's life. It goes back to even uh, Mount Sinai and the giving of the law that they had a sort of mobile tent version of the temple. And then when Solomon was king, they, they converted it into a massive building that was at some points 13 stories high. It's a big deal in the ancient world when you don't have cranes. And so looking at this temple and seeing Jesus completely unimpressed by it um, and completely frustrated by its lack of, perp- its lack of adherence to God pur- God's purposes, um, well, you can also see Jesus' own downfall approaching too because he's going to make friends with the wrong people. He's going to make enemies of the wrong people. And it certainly speeds up the events that we know will happen on Good Friday because he's challenging the powers that be on that particular Monday and Tuesday. Three examples of what Jesus finds wrong with the temple worship but from our reading today. Three examples I want to share with you, and then we'll talk a little bit about what this means for us. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about is, is what's Jesus' problem with the temple? Well, the first is that its universal purpose is neglected. That's the first problem. And the key word here is universal. It's no coincidence that Jesus quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, who says, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all, all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. From the very beginning, right, God's partnership with Israel was not supposed to be a sort of weird special club that keeps everybody out, right? It's the house of prayer for the, the nations. The idea that God had was that um, Israel would be the special different people who lived a different life, who followed God faithfully, and the rest of the world would see that and go, oh, hey, what's going on in Israel? We should really check that out. And that was the original plan. It's why Jesus will say things like, Israel, you're, you're the light of the world. You are the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And there's this, this universality idea that the whole world was to look at Israel as different and special, and, and they would chalk it up and say, wow, their God is something special. I should really look into this. Instead, what ends up happening is that the, the practices of Israel and how this was executed on a regular basis, um, Israel wanted to keep people at arm's distance from God. Um, they sort of viewed this idea of being special for the sake of the world as being special for their own sake. And so if you weren't part of the club of Israel, um, you weren't taken into consideration And here's how we see this in our reading. We talked in our reading about Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers. Well, why were the money changers in the temple in the first place? Why did Jesus get so mad at them being there? And the answer is that people came from all over the world to see this temple and to worship God. But to worship God, you needed to bring an animal to sacrifice, right? We sacrificed animals at the temple. Well, what happens if you're an accountant from Rome? (laughs) What happens if you're like a doctor from Egypt? Or what happens if your flocks as a farmer, you didn't have any sort of blemishless animals to bring? What do you do? Well, the answer is that you go to the, go and buy one and bring it to the temple instead. Okay, so you need to go buy an animal. Well, you'd bring your money, you go, you'd find a place to buy the animal. But the next problem presented itself was that the money you had if you were traveling from everywhere else had little uh, currency symbols that had foreign gods on them. 
And there was a real thing about, you know, are we really going to take like coins made to like Osiris from Egypt or, 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 you know, Zeus in Greece? And are we going to take these coins and store them in God's temple when they're dedicated to these foreign? That doesn't make sense. So you had to swap your money out. You had to trade your money out and get the good sort of, you know, paganless coins, right? The paganless gold that you could use to pay for the various uh, animals. So you have this, this whole system set up where, where people would come from all over the word, world to worship God, but then they have to change their money out, they have to go buy the animal, it became very complicated. And not only that, but all of this was taking place inside the inner court of the temple. Now this inner court of the temple was the place where the people of the world were supposed to come to worship. Right There's some inner courts that were further in that were for people who were Jewish, right? You, the, sort of the closer to the middle of the temple you got, the, the, the more restrictions there were of who could be there. But this outer courts, the place filled with farm animals and doves and, and, and money changers, you know, get your shekels here, right? That whole area was designed for people to worship God who were from out of Israel who weren't uh, Jewish, Right? There's this whole place where God says, I want all of those people to come and worship me at the temple, and here's a space for them to come and worship me. And what Israel has done is they've set up shops in there. <laughs> and so you have these people who are presumably Gentiles coming from all over the world, and they're trying to worship and say prayers and, and offer their sacrifices, and all they hear is moos and maz and get your shekels here. And, you know, there's animals there, and they, they have to relieve themselves, and they're not being taken out to relieve themselves. So they're stepping an animal poo to go to church, and it's, they're smelling it, and it's on their shoes. I mean, it's, it's this big, huge mess, and it's blocking this part of the temple made for people who wanted to worship God, who were not Jewish, that God wants to come worship him, but the Jewish people sort of turned that area into a marketplace as opposed to a church. And so you have in this, this, this total disregard for God's vision of being God's people, attracting people from God from all over the world. The people didn't care, but Jesus cares very deeply. And that's why when he comes in on Palm Sunday, he does a quick inspection to figure out what to do. And then he presumably goes home that night. And the next morning he gets up and he cleanses it all out. He tells everyone to get out because this is a place for people who don't know me to come and worship me. And you've turned this into a food court, a Starbucks, a livestock market, and the airport exchange terminal all at the same time. What the heck? So that's the first thing that Jesus says is a critique, that the temple is for people, for everyone to come and worship God, and the people of Israel did not follow through with that vision. The second critique Jesus has is that its leaders have strayed from God's vision too. Um, in our reading today, right, he shuts down the temple on that second day. On the third day, he, he is a, a, assaulted, he's attacked um, by, by all of these different groups, every single denomination within Judaism who had any sort of desire to be powerful. They came at Jesus that next day. And you read all of the stories there about how the Sadducees, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, the chief priests, scribes, and more scribes, and Herodians, they all came to Jesus with wicked intent. He's very popular, so they couldn't like actually arrest him, but they could try to discredit him and trap him and make him into the sort of person who would, um, uh, they were, were going to try to destroy his popularity. Because once his popularity is destroyed, then they could arrest him. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is he, he, there's just over and over again, people come to Jesus challenging the authority. The chief priests and the elders, these official kind of leadership figures, 
in the temple, they come to Jesus and say, hey, you don't have the authority to shut down the temple. What the heck were you doing yesterday? Who told you you could shut down the temple like this? And Jesus sort of parries that with that question with another question about John the Baptist. And then Jesus responds with a parable comparing the current leadership of Israel to the leadership of Israel in Jeremiah's day which is notoriously corrupt, who killed the prophets, and who got Israel um, sacked by the Babylonians. Not a compliment, for what it's worth. Not a compliment. And then the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus, and they start to to poke him about a hot-button issue about taxes. And we know the answer, right? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God that which is God's. But there's a point where Jesus says, does anybody have a, have a denarii? Anybody, can I borrow one real quick? I don't have one on me. And the Pharisees give him one. They give him a little denarii. And he says, whose image is on the denarii? And they say, it's Caesar. Well, Caesar was worshipped as a Roman god. This is the very type of money that's not supposed to be used in the temple. That's why they have all the money changers. And so when Jesus points this out and he gives it back to them, it's embarrassing, it's humiliating. Because these are the people who say, hey, you know, you need to go change your money over there, but they have the pagan money in their pockets. And we begin to think maybe all this stuff about money changing, it's not about money changing. It's not about that at all. It's about lining the pockets of the people who are in charge. So Jesus embarrasses them. He, he frustrates them. They, they walk away. Not only do they walk away amazed, but the crowds are thinking, these Pharisees aren't such hot stuff either. It continues on. The Sadducees ask a question about marriage and the resurrection, and Jesus answers, but he pulls no punches. I don't think I've ever heard Jesus say something so blatantly offensive. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> he has no time for the Sadducees. Um, I mean, tell us what you really think, Jesus. And then a scribe comes to Jesus to ask him to weigh in on an important legal question about which laws are most important. It's not as much an attack. It's just one scribe who has a question for Jesus. Maybe there's this kindling of faith in this scribe that Jesus actually is who he says he is. And what's the answer? The scribe and Jesus agree. What's the most important law? Well, we read it every Sunday at church. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and the scribe says, that's it, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, that's right. And, and the scribe says, very interestingly, he says, that's more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Which is to say that those two laws are more important than anything that happens in this temple. And Jesus says to him the nicest thing he says all day. He says, what? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because this scribe happens to recognize that beyond the sacrifices and the temple and the glitz and the glamour and the skyscraper and the stones and the buildings, there's something more important than all of it. And that's the key. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're, you're close. You're getting warmer. And what, of course, we'll find is that Jesus becomes the sacrifice that's much more important than all of that. But we'll have to wait till Good Friday to get into more detail. Put all of this together, and what do you get? You get this conclusion. Not a single leader in all of God's holy temple and in God's holy city has God's purposes in mind. What do they want? They want political power. They want money to line their pockets, right? God wants a holy and undefiled Israel who's humble and serves him so the whole world will come to him. And and they're busy arguing about um, what to do about Rome, (laughs) you know, whether the Romans are are to be opposed and fought against or whether they're to be sort of um, placated and work with them for peace. They're talking about, um, you know, do you want sort of very stringent, strict observance for the law or sort of loose spirit of the law kind of interpretations. And they're fighting amongst each other for power in the temple. Who's the best denomination? Who's the biggest and in charge? And Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter because you're all corrupt anyway. You don't understand any of this. 
So everybody who comes to Jesus is, is sort of crushed on Jesus in that way. They come attacking him and they leave beaten by the Son of God. So Jesus has that critique. He, he critiques all of the leadership of, of Israel's religious life together. The third critique Jesus has is that the temple doesn't even recognize Jesus when he's standing right in the middle of them. That the people of the temple don't recognize it. Our reading draws to a conclusion where Jesus asks a question about Psalm 110. It's a psalm where, 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 where King David is talking about the Messiah, and Jesus asks a, a pretty important question. If David wrote this psalm, then, and he says, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, well, who's that second Lord? It's not David. It's somebody else. What is it? It's the Messiah. So David calls him the Lord. So why do we say that the Messiah is, a, is, a, is below David? Isn't the Messiah, shouldn't he be above David? And everyone's sort of scratching their heads going, oh, yeah, and it makes them think a whole lot. And Well, nobody has a question, an answer to that question. They're still figuring it out, and they realize that their, their conceived notions of who the Messiah is going to be aren't really um, all that. And, and again, multiple times in our reading, Jesus is called the son of David, and Jesus is like, well, yeah, but it's much, much more than this. So at this point, we know who Jesus is. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark together this summer. We know he's a healer. We know he's an exorcist. He's a teacher. He's a preacher. We've watched him multiply the bread to feed thousands of people. We've watched him become transfigured uh, and, and commune with the tr as part of the triune God with Israel, with Moses and Elijah. We know that the temple, right, with some hindsight, was built for the purpose of helping Israel recognize what Jesus had come to do. That here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, says John the Baptist, who will not just take away your own personal sins like the Lamb you sacrifice on Passover. And we know that, that the Lamb of God is here. And of course, all of these people, the, the Pharisees have been sending spies and they've been getting reports. They know what Jesus is doing and they know what he's capable of. They see the healings. They've heard the testimonies. They know what's happening. And yet Jesus is standing right in front of them. The whole reason for the temple was to point to the guy in the temple, and they, they miss it. They completely miss the point. When you put all this together, you get a pretty bleak picture of Old Testament church, don't you? At least in this time. This big Old Testament church, it was hostile to outsiders. The leaders didn't care about God's vision as much as they cared about their own. And there was a congregation of people who missed God when he was sitting right there among them. I mean, that's a pretty sad-sounding church. It's no wonder one day Jesus is going to sort of um, shut down on the way out of the temple. Uh, on the way out, one of the disciples says, man, look at this beautiful building, all those stones and how big it is. Isn't it great, Jesus? And Jesus is like, you know, God's going to tear this whole thing down. <laughs> one day the stones will not be on top of each other. So I think for, for anyone in church anywhere, this section of Mark's gospel, it should really shake us. It's, it's a warning. It's, a, it's a, a vision of how bad things could be in church. Because God takes this sort of thing very seriously. How we seek God in our midst, how we welcome outsiders, how the church keeps God's priorities the main priority, and we put aside our petty differences and our own priorities uh, in light of God's will for us. And the stakes are incredibly high. For those of you who know your history, you will know that 30 years or so after Jesus' ministry, after he rises from the dead, about 30 years later, um, there will be a rebellion, and Israel will try to fight off the Romans. And they will go to war against the Romans, and it will end incredibly badly. And in the year 70, about 30-some-odd years, 33 years, after Jesus' ministry concludes, 37 years, 
Um, Jerusalem will be put to siege. It will be defeated and sacked. And as Jesus says in our reading, the temple will be torn down stone from stone. The only thing left of it will be a little bit of its foundation, and it will be completely leveled. Part of it, of course, is because of what we read on our reading today, that the temple did not serve its purpose. The temple's purpose was to point people to Jesus, to help them see the Messiah when he was there, and it was exactly the opposite of what happened. Jesus was there, and nobody recognized him. And yet in the middle of all this, Jesus does find one glimmer of hope, doesn't he? There is one person who gets the two thumbs up from Jesus in all of our reading today. Who is it? It's the widow. The widow who gives like two half pennies into the offering. And I imagine Jesus sitting there watching all of the, the people dump all of this money into the treasury. And, and he sees the one woman kind of shuffle forward, an older widow. And he grabs his disciples and says, look, 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 look over there. And she puts in the two half pennies. And Jesus goes, that, did you see that? That's the real faith of this temple. That's someone who has real faith. Forget everyone else. It wasn't about the amount that she put in, of course, right? Because people put in much more in the amounts. It was about the totality of what she put in. What does Jesus say? She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. Everything she had to live on. And so what Jesus says is that in this world of of falseness and, and corruption in a temple that has lost its way, there is one person who has lively faith. And the, the signifier of her faith is that she gave up everything, everything to be a follower of God. That's what our reading says. And in fact, it will find that Jesus has more in common with this widow than just about everything else because he will be the other person in Mark's gospel to give up everything, to give up everything. He will give up his body. He will give up his life. He will give up the blood in his veins, the air in his lungs, because his vi- the vision of God in all of this is the salvation of the entire world. Not just Israel, but the entire world. And when, when that's God's view, of course, right? That's what God wants, as we've discussed. Well, um, he's going to save this cosmos uh, corrupted and marked by sin. The method of this is going to be Jesus giving up everything that he has to make it happen. That's how it's going to happen. And it will come through the form of a death and a resurrection, which will echo the temple sacrificial system, but be something of a much greater magnitude. And the the blood of goats and lambs, says the the author of Hebrews, uh, could never take away the sins of the world, but Jesus's can. And it's out of that devotion and out of that love that he gives it freely. And so the temple is not the end-all, be-all of what it means to be a follower of God. It is Jesus. And so what's at stake then is that every Sunday when we come to church, what's at stake is the gospel itself. Do we believe and worship Jesus because he died and rose again? Do we offer ourselves to God in totality as living sacrifices, as the Bible swears it, uh, putting our own wills aside to follow God's will? Do we actively search for God's work for us and for individuals and others in our families, in our congregations, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? Do we welcome anyone? and invite them to come to the same God who loves and cares for us. That's the lesson here. Because if we're not doing that, then we might as well just be the temple. A place where people come, and a little bit happens every now and then, but it doesn't happen all the time. And God can very easily say, well, um, what would I rather have? This sort of anemic thing, not doing my will, or just not have it at all? And if we can see that God is very free to choose not to have it at all. 
And so my prayer for you, friends, this morning is that you find a church that is the opposite of the temple, one that welcomes outsiders, one that puts God's will before everything else, and one that regularly finds God at work in their midst. That's my primary hope for you. My secondary hope is that you find it here at Epiphany. Um, may, may Jesus' words this morning um, and his condemnation against the temple uh, inspire us to a right and godly humility for our shortcomings. And help, may it help us all readjust our vision for what God has most important and, and, and give us a vision for what it looks like when it falls apart so we can be inspired on into a vision of what it actually may look like for you and for me and everyone else. So let me pray for us and then we'll conclude our sermon this morning. Pray with me, please. Lord, help us to be the church that you've called us to be, that we might also do the work you want us to do. Work among us, give us hearts that desire your will, use us for your kingdom's sake. Teach us to, to, to love and to help and to welcome those in our midst who do not know you. Um, help us to, to give us opportunities for us to share about the hope that we have. Help us to be the kind of tree that when you come looking for good fruit, you find it, and not you are not disappointed by what you see. May our hope in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come keep us focused on that which pleases you. This church is yours. This place is yours. Our lives are yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.